Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hedagogy. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Frances Valentine, or at least I'm mostly excited to be speaking with her. The only reason that I have any reservations about this interview at all is that she has a wonderful New Zealand accent, while I certainly do not. If you haven't heard of Frances, she not only holds a master's degree of education management from the University of Melbourne, and what she's doing, and you'll hear her expound on it at length in far better ways than I could possibly do any justice, is literally transforming the education in New Zealand by working with the educators there through extensive development training on progressive pedagogies. She's having such a tremendous impact, and her list of accomplishments is quite formidable. In 2013, she founded the Mind Lab. And in 2016, she founded the Tech Futures Lab. You can go to both of those websites and see what they're all about. In 2015, she was awarded the Westpac New Zealand Woman of Influence and the Next New Zealand Woman of the Year. In 2016, she was named one of the top 50 EdTech educators in the world by EdTech International. In 2017, she won the New Zealand Flying Kiwi Award and was inducted into the New Zealand High Tech Hall of Fame and named one of the top three New Zealand innovators of the year. And in 2022, she was inducted into the New Zealand Hall of Fame for Women Entrepreneurs. And in 2022, she published her first book, Future You, Be Curious, Say Yes to Change. It's such a pleasure to have her on, and our discussion covers so many intricate and expansive issues of education. So here's Francis Valentine on Hedagogy. Hi, Francis. Welcome to Hedagogy. It's so great to be here, Steve. Despite how well-known you are in certain circles, I'm sure that most of my listeners are not familiar with your work. So maybe you can give us a little bit of an understanding of the scope of what you do. Sure. So I have been in education and mostly in higher education for the last 25 years here in New Zealand. And the focus has really been around the creative aspect of learning, but also the impact of technology and digitization. So when we think about how do we learn and actually how do we critically think and how do we adapt and adopt, that's really my sweet spot. But fundamentally, my real interest is professionals who are in the workplace. So you could be a teacher, a health worker, a a retailer, a logistics expert, you know, really people who are well into their career and suddenly facing change at an unprecedented rate. And they're trying to work out how they navigate it because all the tools they had from when they went to university or to school no longer apply. And so trying to develop the skills that they need for the road ahead. So give us a sense of where you find the most challenge, or at least I guess where the educators with whom you work encounter the most challenge with respect to the kind of change that they're facing. Well, there's two things. For example, a teacher, a teacher is taught to be the sort of the fountain of all knowledge. And, and that's really embedded, this idea that if you, you, know, you hold the information, you share the information. And now when knowledge has been democratized, we're seeing the class as a cohort of learners who are collaborating and learning from each other as much as they are from the teacher. So the teacher has to suddenly have this idea that they have to be part of a, almost a team approach to learning as opposed to being the one that leads instruction. And that's quite a big shift for behavior because it really is sort of saying the sum of parts is, is now more important than just the, the sole source of knowledge. But the other aspect of that, I think, on top of that is collaboration is not something that comes naturally uh, if, you've, if you're a little bit older because it's not something we were taught to do. You know, we, taught, we, we learned in isolation. And so a lot of it was self-directed. We went to the library. We found the research. We, you know, we had an interview. And now, of course, that's very different, that the tools enable collaboration at a much greater scale. And so it's partially thinking differently. Partially, it's adapting to new ways of thinking. And then, of course, you have a generational shift of expectation. So put all those things together, and it's, there's a lot of complexity in terms of somebody who's, who's looking at their career saying, it looks, it's, this looks so different than what I actually was trained for. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because one of the things that I'm always talking about on the podcast is the fact that knowledge no longer has the currency that it used to have. Education can no longer survive if it still considers knowledge to be its primary currency. 
we have come from a system where the educator was the purveyor of knowledge. And that knowledge had particular value because of its scarcity. You couldn't get it from anywhere else. You couldn't get it from anyone else. And in essence, you needed the expert in that field, in that discipline, to be able to purvey it. And that is where the value in the commodity of knowledge came from. But now we're facing a world where anyone has access to all the knowledge they could read about anything. They still might need someone to help them understand some of that knowledge, but knowledge no longer has the value that it used to hold. And so I really appreciate what you're saying about changing the role of the educator. What's the main step you've taken to foster change in educators or to elicit their desire for change? Or are they coming to you already ready to change? What's the impetus? What's the catalyst, I guess? I think if I went back, say, five to eight years ago, they were very much the early adopters, the the people who could see the writing on the wall. They weren't necessarily a particular age group. They were really more people who were looking into their classroom and seeing the shift through generational adaptation that happens and and trends and, of course, technology overlays, um, the big levers of change in society. You know, people were talking about things, of course, things like social media and always-on connectivity was a big player in that. So if I go back in that five- to eight-year window, there were definitely early adopters, you know, teachers who were like, okay, I, I can see that over the next decade – the way I think about the pedagogical approach that I use, the, the, the way I think about teaching and learning is going to change. And so they stepped into that very mindful and very willing to make those adjustments. If I go through in more recent times, we are now probably in a group of teachers who are probably a little more reluctant um, and a little more hesitant, possibly from a confidence point of view, possibly from a stubbornness point of view, but also at the point where they realize they've got enough years ahead of them that actually if they continue the way they're going, their actual ability to have students thrive is going to become increasingly challenged because, you know, the way the curriculum is delivered is different, the subjects have have changed, assessment looks different, and then, of course, you know, achievement has a different framework, and then you've got all the layers of things like anxiety and and, uh, wellness issues on top of that. You know, teachers are fulfilling a much broader role right now. So I do think it's, it's shifting over time. There's not a lot of young people going into teaching, and certainly not at the same numbers that we would have seen 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so, you know, teachers are staying in the profession for longer. It's not unusual to be a 70-year-old teacher these days around the world. And so, and that potentially will stretch even further into 70s and maybe towards 80, which really means a very, very different type of, of teaching. And I think just going back to your point about how knowledge is perceived and access, you know, I think about it as, Knowledge was once for the privileged, and there we, therefore the privilege was the person who went and learned as much as they possibly could to then share with others. And now, of course, that's, that privilege has gone, which is wonderful because now accessibility and equity is a much, it's a much more even playing field. But then we have this uh, other element, which is we get overly indexed by what we already have done before. And so breaking habits and rituals are really hard. So if, if you've had privilege, you've had a class sitting down, listening to what you have to say, taking notes and being very studious, and suddenly that no longer has a place and people aren't responding well to that. It's very hard to break away from the privilege of having that control. You know, it's a command and control environment to being in a much more sort of distributed leadership, almost a servant leadership uh, as, as a teacher, and saying, how do I now distribute my knowledge as a collective uh, it takes quite a bold and uh, confident teacher to, to make that, that shift and still feel like they've got that authority um, that they you know, they trained and trained for and have years of experience in doing. I'm so glad you bring this up because I've worked with so many educators, and many of them, of course, come ready to change and wanting to adopt new practices, and certainly go on and go ahead and do that. But many also come wanting to learn new things and theoretically wanting to change, theoretically wanting to get into other pedagogies around critical thinking, problem-based learning, mastery learning, etc. But when it comes down to it, there's a percentage who really don't want to change. They don't want to adopt new practices. They're not willing to try to change their practice. There's that percentage that remain fixed in where they are and what they've been doing, even when they're attending my workshops, specifically because they're dissatisfied with the outcomes that they're getting. 
So what do you do to shake people out of that fixed position? How do you help them transition? How do you cajole them out of it? I think we, we, we use the analogy of above the line or below the line. And we, we talk about, you know, what would above the line thinking look like? And, and often people say, oh, well, it's people who are open and they're willing to learn and to share and to collaborate. And you go, okay, what would people look like below the line? They say, well, they're, they're basically are fixed and they have to be right. And then we say, well, how are you in your classroom? Are you fixed and having to be right? Or are you that highly collaborative, willing to learn and think? And sometimes that self-reflection, they suddenly go, oh, gosh, you know, I am that person who has to be right. I have to have the last say. Or I tell people we can't do it differently because, you know, because I teach math and math taught this way. So I think some of it is a self-reflection because they self-identify. You know, we, we get them to identify what, what it would, would you want your students to be. And then they, you know, there's suddenly this, oh, gosh. I'm the one that has to be right and I'm fixed mindset and my students are the ones who are all willing to do things differently. So I, there is a lot of self-reflection, I think, in, in personal development that you know we, we have to know when we're doing the same thing either on autopilot or because it's familiar or it's easy. You know, we bring out the same teaching resources. You know, I've seen and we, you know, we've taught thousands and thousands of teachers uh, at a postgraduate level. And there is always an aha moment when teachers go, I've taken this knowledge, I've applied it back in my classroom, and oh my goodness, I love teaching again. I feel like that excitement I had in my early years where it wasn't repetition, I wasn't just sitting here going through the motions. But it does take a a really clear and definite commitment to make that shift. And, And to your point, you know, not everybody is ready. Not everybody, even with the best knowledge at their fingertips, they still want to go back to the way they did things. What kind of training are you offering around what kind of pedagogies and through what process are you taking these educators? So at the end of studies with us, teachers are actually coming out with a master of contemporary education. So it's a very, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly traditional master's program from a name, namesake. But within it, the contemporary is what gives it away, really. The contemporary education piece is saying, If you take the role as a teacher, you're taking the role as a leader. Now, the first thing we get is a huge amount of pushback from teachers who say, oh, no, no, I'm not a leader. I'm a teacher. And then, you know, we start to say, well, what are the what are the uh, characteristics of a leader and what do they do? And, you know, let's think about a good leader. And then they, of course, start going through that process of, oh, gosh, I, I do lead a class. And, you know, most teachers have very little to do with other teachers. You know, it's very much a classroom controlled. I mean, sure, they catch up socially in the staff room and they do other things, but but the majority of them are alone and, of course, they are leading. When we think about um, critical thinking, we really are talking about, with us, we talk about the types of critical thinking uh, methodologies. And because we're talking cross-sector teachers from different subjects and different year levels, and but the heart of it is saying, how do you share knowledge so that you're you have knowledge and that you've known and you've you've known to be true for some time. Now you want others to look at that information and be able to decipher whether or not it's good knowledge. And if it's good knowledge, how do they one, you know, contextualize it and what they're doing? Two, how do they validate and evidence it so that they can see it in their own practice? So a student, you might have a 12-year-old student who's suddenly going, okay, you told me this. How do I contextualize that information? into something I can relate to. So, you know, what would that activity look like? So depending on the age of the student you're teaching, you have to find something that is obviously identifiable as something they want to do. So contextualizing what this information means. So if it was a mathematical theory, they might go out and build something or they might get blocks out because they want to show the angle of, you know, trigonometry or whatever it might be. Then actually, if they can't evidence it, if they can't apply it, then it's like, why not? What is it, what's the missing piece? So then you have to go through you know, other forms and processes of critical thinking to saying, does it mean it's not true and that actually we've been taught something that's actually not correct or am I applying the knowledge incorrectly? So then they have to go through this evaluation process. And obviously, if, if they've been taught well, it is true and they have to figure out the process to get to, to, to validate that. Now, in a science class or a math class, there's one way of doing that. If it was English language and you're trying to understand the rules of grammar, incredibly difficult, but actually then they can discover other ways that same grammar can be used or where it would be misused. And actually, you know, it could be in a play situation or writing a poem or in going through and, and using things like observation or 
review or working in teams, they might give them a play with no grammar and say, make sense of this, and then having to put it in. So, And then the meaning of another person who puts the grammar in an entirely different place, and then the meaning completely changes because of a few apostrophes or full stops. So for us, it's about saying, how do you take information, dissect it, contextualize it, analyze, validate evidence, and then apply it? And that can look and you know come up in many different ways. But in that process, the teacher is going, well, I have to really think outside the square now because actually all of that before came on a one-page worksheet and we told them to remember it. Right. And so what are the pedagogies you're bringing to the educators then? And how are you teaching them to transform their own practices to move students to a place where students can do different things in the classroom? So we, we ask them as part of their learning to to create, you know, basically, how would they do this? So we're actually saying to them, use your context. So if you are teaching a, a class of 12-year-olds and you're teaching them, I mean, it could be anything, but let's just say, say it is music uh, or history, or let, let's go with history. So you've got, okay, so here's the historical facts that we want to teach you. We, we say, how would you take this class of 12-year-olds and teach them a particular historical period? And so they might say, well, first of all, we need to contextualize it. So we will get them to go into Google Earth. And we will get them to say, okay, everybody in small groups come together on Google Earth. I want you to find out exactly where this historical event took place. I've told you the name of the town or the city. Now I want you to identify it on the actual, on on Earth. What else do we know about that place? What other historical events happened there? What's the environment look like? Does it have trees? Is it a city? What's the population? What language do they speak? What food do they eat? And so they you know, when the teacher's looking at this going, oh, so no no longer are they just talking about Normandy in France and this is what happened. It's like, oh, this is what was going on there. This is how many people lived there and, and, and this is what they were doing and this is other things that were going on at the same time. And so we're getting them to say, how would you do this? What would be that contextualizing it? And then how would you go through these other st- steps of evidence and what other knowledge can you bring in? So we don't have a prescriptive approach, but we do really put the onus back on the teacher to say, you're telling us you teach it this way today. How would you teach that same thing tomorrow with the view of engaging students so that in 10 years' time and 50 years' time, they still remember it because they're going, oh, I had this great teacher who when we when were talking about Normandy France, this is what we did. And you know, some of them will go as far as saying, we'll get them into costume and we'll role play or you know, we will do things or we'll make a meal of what the type of food they had. And someone bring, you know, you know, some flattened bread and somebody might say, well, I've got honey from, you know, the, from the hives and, and this is what they had. And, you know, so you start to bring things to life. And then critically, when you're thinking back, it's not just a moment in time. You can contextualize your thinking around an entire experience. And it's a bit like, why do we remember sort of our summer holidays so much or, our first date, you know, for the person we fell in love with or the first car we drove and we can remember what it smelt like and we can remember what the glove box looked like and, you know, those details, things that are, are really big in our lives, we, re- we retain and we remember them in huge detail and, and, and the same reason why some people look so fondly back on certain teachers because they took that step well beyond the, you know, standing at the whiteboard and, and writing up some notes and saying, you know, this is, you know, read page 15 and page to page 21 and we'll talk about it. It's, you know, we know so much more about learning and learning styles now, but I do think it's super important in a class that not everybody does the same thing because actually then you're actually going back to a collective learning. So it's better to say to a student in a class, okay, we want to study this period of time in Normandy, France. Now I want um, all of you to take a different approach to find out things about it and then we'll come back together at the end of session or tomorrow's session or next week or whatever it might be and saying, what did your group discover? What did you find out? And what was the process you went to discover that? And then, then the collective knowledge comes back in. So now you have potentially five different viewpoints and five different points of information as opposed to one that's repeated five times. And so you know, too often I walk into a classroom and I see everybody's done the same, you know, sort of their own drawing of the solar system. So instead of someone saying, well, I'll take this planet and you take that star and, and you take that rocket system and you think about NASA and, you know, and actually doing and then having, you know, the sort of the whole ecosystem and the contextualizing across multiple touch points. So someone goes, wow, I didn't know that about Saturn. It was so interesting that you did all that deep dive into Saturn. And who knew about Pluto? And I didn't realize that the gravitational pull does, you know, so then you have this much more expansive learning 
a situation. At the end, you've taken no more time because everybody's learning separately and bringing it all together. And I think that is truly when you start looking at critical thinking in a very different way because now you're, you're, you're using the tools of, of analysis in a much more kind of comprehensive way uh, than you do when you just you know learn, rinse and repeat. I love how you're talking about this and I'm really encouraged by it. I love how your approach seems founded on not just the student's understanding of the world and how they approach it, but really on the epistemology of the educator. You seem to be working with the educator's epistemology of knowledge and the educator's epistemological view of students. And it seems like you're trying to move something that was in a static position into a dynamic position that's more fluid and engaging and so forth. I think that's a fascinating way to conceptualize the relationship between the teacher and the student and the relationship between the teacher and knowledge. And I'm fascinated as well by what you're doing with this educator's role in the classroom, I guess, with respect to creating this dispersion of responsibility in the class with respect to knowledge and the co-construction of understanding in the classroom, where students, it seems to me, are bringing different aspects of the subject matter back to a collective from which everyone benefits. But I do think it also prompts a question. And I guess the question is, what's the standard by which this collaborative knowledge and these dispersed understandings are ultimately evaluated or verified? It seems to rely heavily on the question of process and practice, which is certainly important. But I can imagine many educators listening raising questions about the veracity of knowledge, about how we're weighing the importance of different pieces of knowledge, about whether or not all views are considered equal. Is all truth relative to the viewpoint to the individual? I think some educators must be thinking that co-construction of knowledge is great and having different students bring different things forward is wonderful. But what about standards for knowledge as well? Pedagogy will return in just a moment. But first, I want to mention my other podcast, Parentology, which uses insights from neuroscience, psychology, educational theory, and other disciplines to help parents parent better through science. So if you know of any parents at all, I hope you'll recommend that they take a listen to Parentology. More importantly, if you or anyone you know has kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, or godchildren, please visit the Critical Thinking Institute, which you'll find at thectinstitute.com, the home of Brighter Minds, Better Futures. It's the first program I've ever designed specifically for young people and families. It's born of over 30 years' research into peer-reviewed material from multiple disciplines. It's the most comprehensive program of its kind. It's the only one that features the Institute's unique inside-out critical thinking methodology. And on top of all of that, the program's simply a lot of fun. If you go to the ctinstitute.com and view the previews, I think you'll find that many parents you know will get just as much, if not more, out of the program as their kids. And for a limited time only, Brighter Minds, Better Futures is available at the pre-launch rate of 50% off. No, really, 50% off, but only until December 30th. Just use the code HEDAGOGY. Once again, just tell everyone you know with kids to go to the ctinstitute.com and they can take advantage of 50% off with the code HEDAGOGY. What about standards for knowledge as well? So certainly a big part of critical thinking is actually validating the importance. And so, you know, to find out that, you know, there's how many craters there are on the moon may not have a huge um, need for anyone to know that information. It's unlikely to be assessed in any formal testing. However, at the same time, by discovering that, you're now discovering there are craters on the moon and what's the purpose of a crater, which may be part of a bigger conversation, which is very important. And so every day now, all people, doesn't matter whether a teacher or a student or whoever they are, we are looking at information, overload of information, and having to evaluate the likelihood of it being true or relevant. And so we're doing that at a snap second. You know, we're looking and saying, is this true? You know, all the social media, the media channels, the influence on media, you know, that what we see, and then of course, then the algorithms on top of that with, with technology take us down rabbit holes and reinforce the views that we have. And so we can very easily become completely absorbed by things we believe to be true. And, and this is where critical thinking around the evaluation is, what do we really know to be true and how do we validate that? We don't put a weighting in saying, 
the child who said that there is, I have no idea, but let's just say there's 42,000 craters on the moon. Do not quote me on that. <laughs> that information versus the person who said there are craters on the moon and this is what the craters are from and this is how they got there and what they mean. To me, neither one of those is more important than the other because they are connected by the fact that there is an evidence of someone going and researching and trying to understand. It's coming together of information, the conversation takes place. Now, all of that to me, information is only important when you can put it in context. You know, out of context, it means nothing at all. And so you know, the relevancy is going to be by comparison or it's going to be because it's attached to other sources of information. The challenge I have is we then have an assessment system which says you need to know certain answers to pass the exam. And there's very few alternatives to that in the market around the world, the education sector today. There's still a point where you're either under time pressure, you're drawing, you're writing, you're observing, you've been tested. And so then we teach to the exam. And so how the pushback we get is, that's great. I love this expansive view. I love that students are learning more. I love that they can talk in much more authority about things because they've gone through this critical process. But then we're asking them a very narrow question in the exam. And so how do we not just teach to the exam? Because we know those students need to pass those exams because they become very important. And so that's where the tension is for me, is the joy of learning. And it could be even with music. You might love playing jazz music and things, but at the end of the day, you have to play you know, a type of music you don't like at all. And it's the, te- the piece that you've been told you're going to be assessed on. Where does that fit? Like, what do you do in that scenario? And I think we have to find that happy balance. Because to me, a student who is not engaged with their learning is never going to pass the exam. The the chance, unless they are truly brilliant and they're able to have a photographic memory and rote learn at the last minute, cram it and pass, the majority of students, the second they are disengaged from learning, we already can predict where they're going to go. So for me, I always say to parents, if your children are confident learning, they will be confident under assessments because they won't see that as being everything about learning is difficult and hard and it's, it's judgmental and it's, and it's biased and all the things that sometimes you know, assessment can be. It's about that engagement of saying, how do I work through to get to the point I feel confident that I can walk into an exam, that I believe that I have the ability to learn? I'm astounded how many people feel that they cannot learn. You know, they, I'm not smart enough. I can't do it. You know, my mum doesn't like maths. I don't like maths. You know, there's all this predetermined views on learning. And I think for me, we have to stop that view that learning is complex and difficult and it's only for a few who are super bright. And I think that's truer today than ever before because, you know, we, we have more pressures on, you know, everything's more visible when we kind of compare ourselves a lot more. So I, I, what I understand people are like, okay, this, this all feels a little bit kumbaya and sit, sit around and you know play happy clappy and be all be happy but but it's not that it's it's about saying how do you develop those skills and I think generationally like if I look back and I'm sure Steve if you look back the first time you were truly had independent ability to go leave your house maybe get on your bike go down to the shop to buy some milk or to your friend's house and they live five miles away and you were allowed to do that it was probably pretty young you know, I don't know how young it was for you but certainly for me it would have been under five yeah, I guess I'm having a hard time remembering exactly, but I'm certain that I was right around that age, sure. Yeah, and so we were making decisions. Can we cross the road here? How much money can I spend? Can I carry that loaf of bread on my bike without it falling off? You know, what time would Joey be home? Should, and then, you know, how do I make sure I get home for dinner before someone gets grumpy? So, you know, we were making decisions all the time. And and I think, in a, and for me, I left New Zealand to fly to London to live at the age of 17 on a one-way ticket, not knowing anyone. And I didn't think that was so strange at 17 to do that because it was like, there's a big world out there. But by today's standards, people you know, get horrified by this idea that we could let our child at five years old get in a bike and even to go three doors down, forget three miles away. And so I think we've, we've overly you know, put these sort of, we've removed the ability to learn a lot of these skills naturally of, you know, oh, that's hot. I shouldn't touch it. Oh, oh gosh, I won't touch that again to right through to, you know, experimenting and, and testing things and, and building and construction in the backyard with things you find in the garage and all that sort of stuff has often been removed. So I think we, we are more respons- responsible today as parents and as teachers to really have the ability so that 
if you took, took a 12-year-old, put them on a bus and and they suddenly fell asleep and they woke up on the other side of town, they didn't have a cell phone with them, that they wouldn't entirely freak out that they were suddenly in a neighborhood they didn't know. And they'd go, okay, so here I am. What can I do? I need to find a way to get contact with someone or do I have enough money in my pocket to get another bus home? You know, what is the process I need to go through? And so there is, for me, there's this whole shift around how do we build those skills of just analysis and observation and looking at ideas for evidence and, and questioning and and reflecting back, you know, all of those are part of learning. And so I think if we get too hung up on the validation of how important is this versus knowing something different, then we lose the essence of what it means to think critically because it's a lifelong skill, but it's one that actually we can develop and and really tweak and hone and really work through. And of course, if you're teaching a same subject year on year, you'll get really good at understanding the, the relationship between developing those skills and passing the exams because you'll, you'll, you know, you'll thread them together because you'll know exams take on a certain format and certain things are assessed. And so you can, you can start to really tie those things together. But to do one without the other, and it's, we just go back to what we were doing 100 years ago, and, and you know, we know that didn't work because it was an elitist and it was, you know, every part of education back then meant that by the time you were 12, you knew whether or not you were smart, which is clearly not the case. You know, everybody's smart. I think you and I see this very similarly. One of the messages I'm always trying to send to educators and that I'm always talking about on the podcast is that our students are thinkers by nature, but they're doing more thinking outside of school than inside of school. And I think that's one of the greatest travesties of the modern educational system and its emphasis on knowledge acquisition instead of primarily on thinking skills. And I run into so many educators who are concerned that students can learn critical thinking or manifest critical thinking. And I have to point out that what they're really concerned about is whether or not they can manifest that critical thinking in the educational construct. And for that to happen, we need a construct that values, teaches, and assesses critical thinking itself. But we're not in that paradigm. But outside of our educational construct, where what we test and what we do is much more limited, our students are engaged in rich and complex critical thinking about serious matters, about significant others and boyfriends and girlfriends and social relationships and part-time jobs and how to contend with their parents or how to care for their parents or who knows what other kinds of stresses and factors in their lives that they're trying to resolve. And by any comparison we can make, what they contend with in education, even at times when some critical thinking is asked for, is really much simpler. But more to the point, usually education is not asking for any of that complexity and richness. So I think the error really ultimately comes down often to how educators are viewing the students, but how there really also is this issue of the greater educational construct and paradigm and really what it's valuing. So I see a wonderful point you're making. I think that we see it similarly, but I want to circle back a bit because I can hear some of my listeners, I think, wanting a stronger answer on how we get back to that assessment. I mean, I certainly agree, though I think there's much more to critical thinking perhaps than what we're talking about here, but I certainly agree that critical thinking improves all learning outcomes. It makes learning deeper. It makes it stick longer. And of course, it makes learning more interesting. It makes deeper connections between disparate pieces of information, and it makes it internal and connected to us and meaningful. And all of that is true, but I'm still curious as to how we can escape this issue of assessment. How do we contend with these issues of assessment and what's being assessed when it's knowledge-based? How do we cross those lines when we need to cross them? How do we get students across those lines when we need to do so? Well, certainly I'll try, but I, I do... You know, I don't have a huge amount of, of I guess, patience when people are, are still taking the holy grail of the assessment as being the thing that teachers are trying to do is get them across the exam. Because to me, that's not why anybody should go into becoming a teacher. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to say I completely agree with you. It's perhaps the worst reason someone would want to become a teacher. But there are teachers who will say, well, um, you know, unless it's because in the end, their profession is also based upon their ability to get students through the exams. So it's a, it's a, real te- it's a really big point of tension. 
I, I think if we, the most important thing to me is critical thinking needs to start very young, well before assessments are even part of the school curriculum. You know, so in those eight, those early years before, you know, depending on which country you're in, you, you, you probably don't have any really formal tests until you're around 12 years old. Maybe older for some countries, younger in others, but you know, in those years, because in, in the end, when you are studying for an exam, you still need to deploy the same critical thinking because when you uh, presented a problem or a, 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 and within an exam, in that moment, particularly if it's a long format question, you're having to write a long answer, you are having to evaluate you know, what is in three lines, potentially quite a complex answer. And so for many questions like that, I mean, yes, you have to retain the core knowledge, but actually how you think about it under pressure does come back to critical thinking. And so there is an element of more organizations within education, more national organizations, more you know quality assurance organizations, every country has one like the Ministry of Education or equivalent, are starting to understand that there is a shift in, in how people think of assessment. And, and I, I give you a good example. With our students who are adults, they are mature, you know, mo- the average age is mid-40s, and at a master's level, they do not have to write a thesis. So we have now agreement with our New Zealand Qualifications Authority. They can do blogs, they can do um, videos, they can do thought pieces, they can do reports, they can do all, they can do a thesis. I can't tell you out of hundreds, thousands of people, how many people actually choose a thesis, almost zero, because actually they, they, you know, they don't see the, the benefit of that approach. So I think as an educator, I actually feel very comfortable pushing um, and challenging back around where people fall back to traditional assessment. Now, some are national, so it's very hard, but there's definitely a shift away you know, we, we have our particular assessment for high school in New Zealand is very, very flexible. So we are incredibly progressive in terms of the way we do assessment here and much more aligned to the likes with what you'd find in Scandinavia. It's very different than what you'd find in most of Asia and probably in the US. So partially I'm speaking from a system that has already gone through this big transformation of how you're assessed. You do most of your assessment here within the year. So it's internally assessed in the classroom and it's the, the body of work and the evidence and, and the artifacts that you produce over the year. And the test at the end is only a very small component. And in fact, we have, two, we have three levels in our system at, at high school. The first level, what we call NCEA level one, most, if not increasingly, anyhow, schools don't even worry about it. They don't even ask students to sit it because they've realized that the stress of even going through that is not worth it. So they take that extra year for learning and critical thinking, and then they start at level two because you don't need level one to get to level two. So there's all, you know, there is countries are approaching this differently. So I'm speaking from a country where we, we, we are on the progressive side of education. You know, we are highly adaptive. We're a bicultural country. So we have considerations of cultural access and equity as well, which is really important because if you have traditional uh, indigenous people in a country whose natural way of, of being assessed is through orator, or- great orators and they speak and that's the way that they share and, and translate information, to put them in a written exam makes no sense. So so I think there's, there's sort of a, two sides to this. There's the you can accept that assessments are assessments are assessments and we're never going to change and therefore we teach to that and we want everybody to know the answer is A, B or C. Or you actually go, we're going to be part of this change metric. We're going to be part of a change movement and say we're going to teach critical thinking so that we know how to deal with exams and how we respond to those questions which are gnarly and difficult so that they've got the ability to not be intimidated and actually to work through how exams are a part of a critical thinking process. So a very long-winded answer. <laughs> but a good one. And you also alluded to something that I want to make sure we touched on because I think it's part of your work that for me is something I find particularly impressive, which is the scope of the impact you've had. You've reached so many educators and therefore touched and transformed so many more students. Can you speak a little bit more about the scope of your work how big your organization is, and how you've managed to reach so many people, what kind of infrastructure you've built, and how you've done it so effectively. So we started off um, actually teaching children 
originally. So the idea was actually how do we teach particularly 7 to 12-year-olds critical thinking, technologies, problem solving, etc. And we, we created a first, I opened the first lab in 2013, so nine years ago. And very quickly, so school groups would jump on a bus, bring the class to the environment, they'd spend the day with us so they'd learn their skills with the teachers. And the demand was just enormous. You know, people were really interested, you know, nine years ago about this approach. It was at a time when people were really thinking about education differently. We ended up opening multiple sites. And in fact, over the next few years, we we taught a quarter of a million children through that process of teaching them, coming through the doors and busted loads of of young children. Um, But within about six months, the teachers who were bringing these young students to our lab were saying, this is great, but what about us? Like, what's, you know, how do we do this? Like, we'd love to be able to replicate this in our classroom. And so then we, we partnered with a local public, like a university, and we pulled together a program to do official postgraduate studies for teachers. And then we grew uh, that program and we, we took it in, as a satellite model. And so we initially started in four physical locations across the country. And then what we did is we went to a local high school or a college in regions and said, would you become the host school? And every week we will do a face-to-face class of teachers in your region. And it was once a week between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. at night. And they would come together and there'd be you know, somewhere between 30 and 40 teachers. And we got to the stage where we had 24 locations running simultaneously around the country. And we were flying people in, flying people out uh, to teach these four-hour sessions, which were hands-on. They were, you know, they were making... All sorts. They're making hovercrafts, or they were doing electric cars together. As you know, these late fifties, you know, diverse types of teachers all together, and suddenly so outside their comfort zone, working on critical thinking together, both in an applied sense, but also working about you know the, the actual the processes and things around it and the academic side of it. And so we really just said, okay, how do we just keep taking learning out to the the smallest towns? You know, if you have a town of five thousand people, how do those teachers learn to get to learn? And then eventually the technology of online became possible. And so we, we sort of, by the time COVID hit, we were predominantly starting to really teach mostly live classes online and then just having teachers come together as needed. And of course, you know, once you get online, you get infinite scale. So then really the ability to, to reach more people at, at their time. And, and we've now changed some of the methodologies we teach around the timeframes and when and how and how often they like to see each other in person. But actually, we just took a very disruptive view to this idea that teachers, the average age of a teacher here in New Zealand is very similar to in the US, 55, majority by far are female. Most have had very little formal education since they left teacher's college or their equivalent. And so 20 or 30 years on to be put back into learning is a little bit uncomfortable. So we knew that we had to make it as relevant, accessible and applied as possible so that when they learnt one evening, the very next day, they could take that back to their classroom and say, hey, kids, guess what I learnt last night? And they would share their experience as a learner in the same way that the students were and applying it and then making it highly relevant. So that's really how we got the scale. So just over 10% of the entire teaching workforce in the country have now done our program. Uh, so it's it's an enormous program, but it really came from just a wanting to have that accessibility and relevance uh, at the heart of it, and just a lot of very passionate educators who jumped on board with me over the years uh, to make it happen. So you know, I'm a great believer one person can be instrumental in making a, a you know a change, but it takes you know it takes an army of supporters to get there. Well, it's certainly very impressive, and unfortunately, here in the U.S., we have massive teacher flight happening right now. So many teachers are leaving the profession. The profession is more disrespected, I think, probably than ever before in history. And I have no doubt that if we could bring more educators into a space where they're learning to teach in ways similar to what you're describing and in ways that I talk about where thinking rich and driven by thinking and ideas and intellectual discourse that we could not just keep, but invite so many more wonderful people into the profession of teaching. 
but we are certainly not even close to that kind of infrastructure here in the United States. And we would need to transform our educational infrastructure, our conception of education, our administrations, and our political structures if we're going to get there. Some of us here are certainly fighting the good fight, but we're nowhere near where you are in New Zealand. So I guess the next question for you then is, given what you've accomplished and given where you are now, what's the next big hurdle ahead of you? I think it's the same hurdle that you're you're talking about is keeping teachers in teaching because I think the same effect is a huge amount of exhaustion in the market right now. And recognition of teachers in many Western countries is nothing like what it should be. You know, they should be on a pedestal. They should be accoladed for the work they do. You know, most do, most countries have teachers within unions and it gets complicated because you can't do performance-based. And so people get very sort of, they look across the fence at the open market and, and often think, gosh, well, those people, look what they can earn and what can they do. We can't do within these constraints. So to me, teaching needs um, a basically a makeover this idea of the benefits of teaching and so that we can attract some of the the best brains that we can possibly find and the most empathetic, you know, passionate teachers we can going forward. Because if we do have this huge absence of teachers coming into the workforce and we have people leaving who have been in the workforce for a long time, two things will happen is it will become even less attractive because the quality of teachers will also decrease if we get, you know, the people who who should and ideally be going into teaching won't because they just see it as too complex, too bureaucratic, etc. The other thing is we'll start to rely more and more on technology. And I think that would be a real shame too, because a lot of critical thinking, or most of it, cannot be done through technology. You know, technology is a tool, but I think in the absence of people, it's very easy to go, well, we we can have one to many, we'll get a teacher who's great, but they'll be teaching online, they'll teach a class of 100 kids, and we'll get through the, you know, we'll get through the curriculum. And because there isn't really another solution. You know, we can't manifest teachers. The whole world needs more teachers. The population's growing, of course, and there's it's a lot of young people coming through who already are missing out on subject experts because they just cannot get, for example, a great physics teacher in their geographic location, etc. So I'm, you know, I think we do need to to reimagine what teaching looks like and put them on pedestals and enable teachers to have kind of more agency about what they do and and what they want to achieve in their classroom and perhaps less you know constraints that we currently have because it's a great profession but I also know it's one that is increasingly difficult and pressured and you know a lot more hours which is not about just teaching but about other things that come on the peripheral of teaching so that to me is the big disruption that has to happen is how do how do we make you know, teaching just the most incredible profession and that people aspire and acknowledge that it's it's one of the most valuable um, professions there are in the world. Hear, hear to that. So beautifully well said. And I'm so glad you brought up the issue of technology and mass teaching. I've said this before, but I think one of the few very good things for education that came out of COVID, especially here in the United States, though I've seen reports from Europe and Asia which with much of the same conclusion – was that the reference that was being given to online teaching prior to COVID as a solution for so many of our educational problems and teaching ills was utterly disrupted. Everyone very quickly realized the frailty of online teaching, the inherent and significant limitations of what we can do online and what it cannot possibly do for students. We're starting to hear conversations about how we could eliminate so many educators entirely and administrators and pundits asking questions as to why we don't just take the best educator in the country who gives the best lecture on Hamlet and let all the students in the country listen to that lecture on Hamlet and then just test them on it online or something to that effect. And that's obviously so absurd on so many levels, but now people have come to realize why. That's so inadequate for a method of education. But I also think you said something wonderful about needing to give teachers the space to breathe. And we're never going to develop students who are active, free-thinking, critical thinkers who are able to explore topics intellectually on their own and develop interesting perspectives and thoughtful ideas when we put teachers in a box 
in terms of how they have to teach and constrain them with bureaucratic policies and so forth. When educators have to map every 10 minutes in their class about what they're doing, what objective they're meeting, what's happening, there's absolutely no space for the students to breathe intellectually, for them to have the time to think through things critically. So we have to change our whole paradigm of education and construct a kind of educational system and philosophy that will bring our most brilliant minds into the field. I think the really tricky thing about that, and I've seen it for so many years, is that parents often reflect back to when they were a student and they look back to a classroom when there was a very different structure in the way we learned. It was much more rote learning. And so when you start to propose a different type of teaching or pedagogical approach, parents are often the ones who say, oh, that looks a little bit you know, too creative, a little innovative, a little. And so often it's the parents become the squeaky wheel and you know, who sort of like, don't do this, don't, um, my kids are not guinea pigs, they, you know, don't do something radical. But they haven't been on that journey since they left, you know, left high school 25, 30 years earlier. And so, you know, it becomes not just difficult with the compliance and, and, and the sort of the bureaucrats, it becomes an issue with sometimes the communities, including parents. I even think that it runs into the problem of parents or pundits in our generation having fears of young people becoming more radical and free thinkers that students these days will think things that are different than we do and challenging existing norms, to which I say, yes, let's hope they do so. That's why I love this generation where they are totally redefining. You know, They don't accept anything at face value. They just because you told me it's true doesn't mean it's true until I kind of see it and I want to I want to figure out this myself. And of course, they are coming up with all sorts of new values and, and systems. And in fact, most of them are a great improvement on what we did. I mean, I think, you know, I, I love talking to a 12-year-old today because they are thinking about things which I never thought about at the same age. And I think that there is a wisdom in, in a way with the information that they are now having to process. So it's interesting times. One of the comforts that I try to offer people when they express concerns about these new teaching methodologies, about teaching students to think independently and think for themselves, about not, not basing our educational system on existing knowledge, but on critical thinking and the discovery of knowledge, is that any truth that's really worthy is still going to be rediscovered by students in their process. I don't mean that we shouldn't teach anything. But I just mean that the fear that letting students think independently and determine to some degrees what's important and meaningful and let that be a driving force is not going to obliterate any truth that's a worthwhile truth or any knowledge that is worthwhile knowledge. It may obliterate some knowledge that maybe we really don't need or need to reconsider, and we sure as hell hope it's going to invite in new knowledge that we otherwise wouldn't have thought of ourselves. But inquiry and critical thinking are hardly the enemy. And the more we can teach students to think critically, the more we are all moving in the right direction as a society. At least I think so. But I'm going to give you the final parting word on what the future holds. Well, actually, I'd love to take the final word just to say to teachers listening is hang in there and actually take this opportunity to, to think about your profession and what you can do and the amazing impact you can make on students you teach. And so critical thinking is the way forward. And, and I really hope that you continue to teach and make an impact on your, on your community. No better way to end than that. Francis, thank you so much for joining me on Hedagogy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Steve.